0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 11, chapter 26. The end result of the battle is three wounded and four dead men. The crowd in the previous chapter did seem a lot bigger. Would there be a bigger battle if the crowd did not receive a villain in the last chapter, or has that nothing to do with the size of the battle here? The French soldiers still entered Moscow in orderly fashion, but directly afterwards changed from soldiers to looters, what led them to change into looters instead of inhabitants. And after invading Moscow, the soldiers start to loot everything in the city. Did the commanders have a plan to rebuild civilization in Moscow? If not, would a plan have prevented that Moscow burned down? I thought the chapter did a really good job of describing why what happened to Moscow happened to Moscow you know it wasn't a plan to go in there and burn it down it wasn't a plan to go in there and loot it the army arrived but just sort of ceased to be an army because they were all so exhausted and now they had a city to themselves and if you're kind of invading a city and there's no one else there to stop you from doing anything um, and that city's made of wood well sooner or later that city's going to catch fire I thought it was really cool, um, that chapter, to kind of, um, I don't know, the way it, it laid it all out, I thought it was really good. Anywho, Twisted Every Way said, this was an interesting chapter to read. It was fascinating that the French soldiers marched in an orderly and disciplined way and then upon discovering this wealthy city abandoned, began to behave like savages and wreck the place. I'm sure they were hungry and tired, and now look at these huge houses with food pantries and nice beds and precious, expensive artworks. Oh, and let's be careless too, so that half the city burns down. Knowing some basic Russian history, I assume this is about the place where it all starts to go wrong for, Napo- for Napoleon. Ripson 66 says, I don't think the French expected the city to be so empty. They were quite surprised to only have a minor conflict at the Kutiev Gate, and then the city was laid bare before them. Other cities had welcomed the French with bread and salt, but Moscow was basically abandoned and there was food, shelter, supplies, and horses just sitting there with no one to stop them from taking them. It was a good good chapter. It's really a tipping point of the book, isn't it? Um, especially if you're Napoleon, which I'm sure we all are. Uh, Alright, let's just keep reading, shall we? Chapter 28 The absorption of the French by Moscow, radiating starwise as it did, only reached the quarter where Pierre was staying by the evening of the 2nd of September. After the last two days spent in solitude and unusual circumstances, Pierre was in a state bordering on insanity. He was completely obsessed by one persistent thought. He did not know how or when this idea had taken such possession of him, but he remembered nothing of the past understood nothing of the present, and all he saw and heard appeared to him like a dream. He had left home only to escape the intricate tangle of life's demands and enmeshed him, and which, in his present condition, he was unable to unravel. He had gone to Joseph Alexevitch's house on the plea of sorting the deceased's books and papers, only in search of rest from life's turmoil, for... In his mind, the memory of Joseph Alexevich was connected with a world of eternal, solemn and calm thoughts, quite contrary to the restless confusion into which he felt himself being drawn. He sought a quiet refuge, and in Joseph Alexevich's study he really found it. When he sat with his elbows on the dusty writing table in the death-like stillness of the study, calm and significant memories of the last few days rose, one after another in his imagination, particularly of the Battle of Borodino and of that vague sense of his own insignificance and insincerity compared with the truth. Simplicity and strength of the class of men he mentally classed as they. When Gerasim roused him from his reverie, the idea occurred to him of taking part in the popular defense of Moscow, which he knew was projected. And with that object... He had asked Gerasim to get him a peasant's coat and a pistol, confiding to him his intentions of remaining in Joseph Alexevich's house and keeping his name secret. Then, during the first day spent in a- inaction and solitude, he tried several times to fix his attention on the Masonic manuscripts, but was unable to do so. The idea that had previously occurred to him of the cabalistic significance of his name in connection with Bonaparte's more than once vaguely presented itself, but the idea that he, Larousse Bezuhov, was destined to set a limit to the power of the beast, was as yet only one of the fancies that often passed through his mind and left no trace behind. When, having bought the coat merely with the object of taking part among the people in the defense of Moscow, Pierre had met the Rostovs and Natasha had said to him, Are you remaining in Moscow? How splendid! The thought flashed into his mind that it really would be a good thing, even if Moscow were taken, for him to remain there and do what he was predestined to do. Next day, with the sole idea of not sparing himself and not lagging in any way behind them, Pierre went to the Three Hills Gate, but when he returned to the house convinced that Moscow would not be defeated, he suddenly felt that what before had seemed to him merely a possibility had now become an absolute necessity had become absolutely necessary and inevitable. He must remain in Moscow, concealing his name, and must meet Napoleon and kill him, and either perish or put an end to the misery, misery of all Europe, which it seemed to him was solely due to Napoleon. Pierre knew all the details of the attempt on Bonaparte's life in 1809 by a German student in Vienna, and knew that the student had been shot and the risk to which he would expose his life by carrying out his design excited him still more. Two equally strong feelings drew Pierre irresistibly to his purpose. The first was a feeling of the necessity of sacrifice and suffering in view of the common calamity. The same feeling that had caused him to go to Merzheysk on the 25th and to make his way to the very thick of the battle and had now caused him to run away from his home and in place of the luxury and comfort to which he was accustomed, to sleep on a hard sofa without undressing and eat the same food as Gerasim. The other was that vague and quiet and quite Russian feeling of contempt for everything conventional, artificial and human, for everything the majority of men regard as the greatest good in the world. Pierre had first experienced this strange and fascinating feeling at the Sloboda Palace when he had suddenly felt that wealth, power and life. All that men so painstakingly acquire and guard, if it has any worth, has only so by reason of the joy with which it can be renounced. It was the feeling that induces a volunteer recruit to spend his last penny on drink, and a drunken man to smash mirrors or glasses for no apparent reason, and knowing that it will cost him all the money he possesses, the feeling which causes a man to perform actions which, from an ordinary point of view, are insane to test, as it were, his personal power and strength, affirming the existence of a higher non-human criterion of life. From the very day Pierre had experienced this feeling for the first time at the Sloboda Palace, he had been continuously under its influence, but only now found full satisfaction for it. Moreover, at this moment, Pierre was supported in his design and prevented from renouncing it by what he had already done in that direction. If he were now to leave Moscow, like everyone else, his flight from home, the peasant coat, the pistol, and his announcement to the Rostovs that he would remain in Moscow would all become not merely meaningless, but contemptible and ridiculous, and to this Pierre was very sensitive. Pierre's physical condition, as is always the case, corresponded to his mental state, the unaccustomed coarse food, the vodka he drank during those days, the absence of wine and cigars, his dirty, unchanged linen, Two almost sleepless nights passed on a short sofa without bedding, all this kept him in a state of excitement bordering on insanity. It was two o'clock in the afternoon, the French had already entered Moscow. Pierre knew this, but instead of acting, he only thought about his undertaking, going over its minutest details in his mind. In his fancy, he did not clearly picture to himself either the striking of the blow or the death of Napoleon, but with extraordinary vividness and melancholy enjoyment. "'imagined his own destruction and heroic endurance. "'Yes, alone, for the sake of all, I must do it or perish,' he thought. "'Yes, I will understand... sorry... "'Yes, I will approach, and then suddenly, with pistol or dagger. "'But that is all the same. "'It is not I, but the hand of providence, that punishes thee, I shall say,' "'thought he, imagining what he would say when killing Napoleon.' Well, then, take me and execute me, he went on, speaking to himself and bowing his head with a sad but firm expression. While Pierre, standing in the middle of the room, was talking to himself in this way, the study door opened, and on the threshold appeared the figure of Makar Alexevich, always so timid before, but now quite transformed. His dressing gown was unfastened, his face red and distorted, he was obviously drunk. On seeing Pierre, he grew confused. At first... Noticing embarrassment on Pierre's face immediately grew bold and staggering on his thin legs advanced into the middle of the room. They are frightened, he said confidentially in a hoarse voice. I say I won't surrender, I say. Am I not right, sir? He paused and then suddenly seeing the pistol on the table seized it with unexpected rapidity and ran out into the corridor. Jerisim and the porter, who had followed Makar Alexevich, stopped him in the vestibule and tried to to take the pistol from him. Pierre, coming out of the corridor, looked with pity and repulsion at the half-crazy old man makar alexevichs frowning with exertion held on to the pistol and screamed hoarsely evidently with some heroic fancy in his head to arms board them no you shan't get in he yelled that will do please that will do have the goodness please sir to let go please sir pleaded Gerasim, trying to carefully to steer makar alexevichs by the elbows back to the door who are you bonaparte shouted Makar Alexevich. "'That's not right, sir. Come to your room, please, and rest. Allow me to have the pistol.' "'Be off, thou base slave. Touch me not. See this?' shouted Makar Alexevich, brandishing the pistol. "'Board them!' "'Catch hold,' whispered Jurasim to the porter. They seized Makar Alexevich by the arms and dragged him to the door. The vestibule was filled with the discordant sounds of a struggle and of a tipsy, hoarse voice. Suddenly a fresh sound, a piercing feminine scream reverberated from the porch, and the cook came running into the vestibule. It's them gracious heavens, oh lord, four of them horsemen, she cried. Gerasim and the porter let Makar go, and in the, sn- in the now silent corridor, the sound of several hands knocking at the front door could be heard. Oh dear, the French are coming to Pierre's door. Not awesome. That's not awesome for Pierre. Alright, have your say about the chapter, and I'll see you tomorrow.